Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the Supreme Court and the rule of law. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I do my level best to cover some of those things for Slate as they continue to fly right at us at high velocities and no sign of slowing down anytime soon. This past week, the high court heard really important machine gun and content moderation cases. It also paused Jack Smith's D.C. insurrection prosecution of Donald Trump, a delay that is going to stop the trial, at least through the summer, we think. A judge in Illinois has removed Donald Trump from that state's ballot pending a decision in the Colorado 14th Amendment case that the Supreme Court has not yet decided. Mitch McConnell, one of the prime architects of the legal hellscape that we now reside in, announced he will be stepping down as GOP Senate leader and... Republicans in that same Senate who were against IVF until they were for IVF this week voted against IVF yet again in a move that could surprise only Charlie Brown were he racing toward the football. We are going to spend some time this week with our good friend, polymath, law professor, and weary Cassandra, Dr. Michelle Goodwin, who's going to try to help us understand this high-speed move from a conversation about abortion bans to the new conversation about IVF bans, why it really hasn't happened at high speeds at all, what we've missed along the way, and what comes next. But we're going to open this week's show with my co-pilot and dear friend, Mark Joseph Stern, to talk about the Supreme Court's decision Wednesday night that will have the pretty inevitable effect of pushing the January 6th criminal insurrection trial that would have happened in Judge Tanya Chutkin's court in Washington, D.C., well into the fall. Later on in the show, Mark's going to be back to fill in our Slate Plus subscribers on the content moderation and bump stock arguments that were heard this week at the court. If you are not already a member of Slate Plus, but you'd like to listen, go to slate.com slash amicus plus. Or if you're listening to us in Apple Podcasts right now, you can ex- act, you can always access the extended version of this show by hitting try free at the top of our show page. But first, In an order that may someday come to be seen as the most consequential thing that has happened in American history, uh, in our time at least, the high court, after doing nothing for over two weeks, paused the D.C. trial over Donald Trump's January 6th conduct. And they did that so they could review an immunity determination by a panel that, well, we at least believe to be bulletproof. Realistically, and even if the court issues a decision on immunity at warp speeds, it's almost impossible now for this case to be tried until maybe the fall. So joining us to discuss, after weeks of speculation about what would happen, what's going to happen, is our own Mark Joseph Stern. Welcome back, Mark. Thank you so much. Happy to be here as always. And I guess I want to just start by saying I feel like we're in such a strange world where we knew the court was going to do a thing. The court did a thing. We don't actually know why the court did a thing. And so yet again, we have this odd split mark between the sort of what I call the hopium docket, you know, all the people who are like, (laughs) it's okay, this is all right, you know, and then the people who are like, the sky is falling, this is terrible. I think you and I have performed versions of each of those (laughs) things in the last couple of days. But 
it really makes me realize that we cover the Supreme Court the way you would cover, you know, the Vatican or some feudal lord where we actually have no information and then we spend a lot of times projecting hope and fear and anxiety (laughs) that maybe it won't punch us again. Well, I actually think that the Vatican adheres much more closely to rules and traditions and standards than the current Supreme Court does. And I'll admit, I let myself start huffing the hopium after Donald Trump asked the Supreme Court for a stay, and it went silent, as you said, for more than two weeks. And I thought, and I think you maybe suspected possibly, that it meant the court was going to deny the stay, allow the trial to move forward. And dissents. Dissents were being written. And Alito was writing a dissent, and I was listening at arguments, and Alito was so extra pissy during arguments in the social media case. And I thought, this is a sign. This is a tell that he's writing a furious dissent, a gonzo dissent from the court's denial of a stay for Trump. And then it all fell apart on Wednesday when the court revealed that I guess it took more than two weeks to write a one-page scheduling order, which, by the way, doesn't even expedite the case at the pace that Jack Smith requested, Uh, special counsel prosecuting Trump, or at the pace that the court itself expedited the Anderson case, kicking Trump off the ballot in Colorado. So it seems like, as you and I have discussed too many times now, frankly, an emergency is an emergency when it interferes with Donald Trump's ability to run for president or stay out of prison, and everything else can wait indefinitely. And again, you know, I just think that The Pope holds himself to a higher standard of transparency and integrity than the current Supreme Court majority because they are so clearly, I hate saying this because I really let myself believe otherwise, they're in the tank for Trump. They're doing what they can to help Trump avoid prison and win the presidency. I'm sorry, I don't want to be the cynic who just says it's a partisan court, but after Wednesday, I do not see how we avoid that conclusion. Yeah, I mean, I think there's this harder question at play here, which is there's kind of the merits question, and we don't need to belabor. There's no merit uh, to the Trump appeal. None. Zero. Frivolous. And then there's the shot clock question, right? Like the doomsday clock ticking down. And I think what we're realizing is that we keep thinking, as you said— because they treated the Colorado case as an emergency, they would treat the immunity case as emergency. But those are very different kinds of emergencies. And, you know, let's recall the COVID mitigation cases were emergencies, right? I mean, you know, SBA was an emergency. So we have to stop thinking that our emergencies are theirs or a, a legal emergency and a political emergency are the same thing. They're two totally different things. And I guess we just need to sit in that. I'd love for you to, having just completely disparaged this entire enterprise of watching and waiting for more signals from the court, can you do your best guess at the court hears this case in late April and... I don't know. I think June is the earliest we get an opinion, although people are saying maybe we could get one in May. And Judge Chutkin's going to allow three months for trial prep. So we're looking at a September trial. And then we run into the DOJ guidance about trying cases in an election year. 
Right. So the court is hearing this argument at the end of April, the week of April 22nd. I'm thinking maybe Thursday of that week, a special argument day, but we shall see. They didn't deign to tell us. You know, the court issues all of its opinions by the end of June. I am very skeptical that the court will get this one out before the end of June because there is a deep tradition of waiting to issue opinions on the Supreme Court until everyone is done writing, including the dissenters. And This was put to the test when Dobbs leaked in 2022. After Dobbs leaked, we know from behind-the-scenes reporting, the majority pushed to release the majority opinion as quickly as possible and just let the dissenters sort of push out their work whenever they were finished. But there was a fight, there was resistance, and ultimately the court decided not to take that route because this tradition is so, again, like like deeply entrenched in how the court operates. But that gives bad faith actors like Sam Alito, you look up bad faith in the dictionary, you see a picture of Sam Alito, you recoil and slam it shut and throw it out the window. That gives Alito an opportunity to simply prevent the majority from saying anything, from issuing its decision until he's done writing his dissent, which could magically take until the very last hour or minute of the month of June before they all flee on their summer vacations. And so let's say the decision comes out at the end of June. That's three months for trial prep. If starting the very next day in July, then that takes us from July to August to September. Right. That trial prep wraps up, say, maybe sometime at the end of September. The trial begins late September, early October. The trial itself is going to take three months. The trial itself is going to be a beast. Think about voir dire in that case. Think about just picking a jury and how hard Trump will fight for every single jury. You know, he's already said the District of Columbia, where the jury will be drawn from, is totally biased against him. So they're going to drag this out at every opportunity. And even though Judge Chuckin is not going to play like Judge Cannon in Florida and just, you know, give him everything and let him run out the clock on every single objection, she does have certain due process obligations that she's going to have to afford to him. So I find it impossible to imagine this trial wrapping up before November, probably after the election. And I think we are all in agreement that if Trump wins the election and assumes the presidency, he will make this go away. He will fire Jack Smith. He will have the charges against him dissolved. He can try a self-pardon, but he doesn't even really need to because he will be in control. And so under the best timeline, maybe the trial wraps up right before Election Day. Yeah, I don't think there's any good scenario. And it sort of, I guess, reconfirms this point, which is the court, I guess, under the best possible construction is trying to look at this as not a legal emergency, don't care if it's a political emergency. And yet the sort of knock-on political emergencies that are going to ensue from this delay, no matter what happens, are catastrophic. And I guess it just keeps bringing me back to, I cannot quite believe that one of the nine people who are making these decisions has a spouse that was actively involved in the notion that the 2020 election was stolen. I mean, it's so bananas that the bananasness of it, as you say, this is how you would cover the Medici's, right? Look at Lord Medici and his lovely wife, who was part of the insurrection. It's bananas. And three others who were, of course, appointed by Trump. And can I just add one gloss here while Please. I'm on a tear? Please. You know, 
I think the best defense, and I think Jack Goldsmith has offered a version of this, is mm -hmm. that if there's an emergency here, it's a political emergency that Trump needs to face trial before November because if he wins, he'll make the charges go away. And that's not a true emergency in legal terms. And so the court has no reason to play ball with Jack Smith. Okay, let's flashback to early 2021. Trump has been on his execution spree, killing as many federal prisoners as he can before Biden comes in and imposes his promised moratorium on capital punishment. There is a case right at the end in like on like January 15th, where the Trump administration wants to kill one last person and a lower court blocks it. And the Trump administration basically goes to SCOTUS and says, hey, if you don't let us kill this guy now and say this is an emergency and clear away the stay and, and let us inject him and kill him, then we all know Biden's going to come in and allow him to survive and indefinitely pause the execution. And we think that's an emergency and a reason for you to let us move forward with this execution. And the Supreme Court agreed. And the Supreme Court said in so many words, this is an emergency. We will clear away the stay and all of the lower court impediments. We will allow you to execute this one last person because Biden is about to come in and impose a moratorium. That was an emergency to the Supreme Court. And this, all of this is not. And if that does not prove that there is something worse than the bad legal reasoning going on, that there is some deep, corrupt partisanship at play here. I, I just don't know what can. Okay, Mark is off the hopium, and you heard it here first. And I'm in withdrawal, Dahlia. <laughs> it's bad. <laughs> Maybe we can stipulate for purposes of this conversation that one of the deep problems with having a Supreme Court beat whose job is now to hypothesize about their own feelings about an unknowable set of decisions at the Supreme Court is that we should maybe direct our attention to the things we know, which is all the bad stuff the court is doing. So, Mark, you're going to be back after we talk to Michelle to take our own Slate Plus subscribers through oral arguments in cases with huge consequences, including social media content moderation and <laughs> regulating bump stocks. And also for our Slate Plus members, we're going to do a little Mitch McConnell, the greatest hits exit interview. You can listen to all this by subscribing to Slate Plus. And when you join, not only will you unlock exclusive Supreme Court analysis and weekly extended episodes of Amicus, but you'll also access ad-free listening across all of your favorite Slate podcasts. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts by clicking Try Free at the top of our show page or visit slate.com slash amicus plus to get access wherever you listen. Mark, any quick messages for our Slate Plus members? We so appreciate you. We love your emails. We love your tweets, even though we hate what Twitter has become. And uh, it's really fun to be able to do an extra chat with Dahlia every week and talk about all the big stuff that can't be squeezed into the regular Amicus episode. So thank you for being there. Thank you for supporting us. Honestly, it really means the world. And just, you know, I know that all of you would pay massive sums just to be able to sit down and chat with the divine Dahlia Lithwick for 15 minutes. And your subscriptions allow me to do that. <laughs> and so I hope that you at least vicariously appreciate all of the glory and joy that you were bringing me. Thank you, Slate Plus listeners. And to the Slate Plus listener who tweeted at us last week that mojitos are not, in fact, 
frothy beverages. Thank you. <laughs> I stand corrected. We'll talk to you soon, Mark. We will be back for what I think is a really vital and necessary conversation with Dr. Michelle Goodwin on what happens if fetuses become legal persons. And it is a much bigger conversation than just Alabama and IVF. Two weeks ago, the Alabama Supreme Court determined for the purposes of their wrongful death of a minor statute that frozen embryos are children. They also located that in a state constitutional amendment that will have vastly broader implications than just wrongful death. This is part of a much broader, longstanding movement that hopes to enshrine fetal personhood, the idea that a fetus or an embryo should have the same rights as a child, into the law. There is almost nobody who spotted the tip of the fetal personhood iceberg and what was beneath it as early or as clearly as Dr. Michelle Goodwin, who joins me now to trace the path we have trod and to warn us about what comes next. Dr. Michelle Goodwin is a highly visible thought leader, podcast host, professor, and frequent commentator on MSNBC, lending her expertise on matters of constitutional law, reproductive justice, and the state of American democracy. She is a distinguished professor at Georgetown, holding the prestigious Linda D. and Timothy J. O'Neill Professorship of Constitutional Law and Global Health Policy. She is author of six books and over 100 articles and commentaries on matters of law, medicine, reproductive health, Health and Biotechnologies. Dr. Goodwin is also author of the award-winning book, Policing the Womb, Invisible Women, and the Criminalization of Motherhood. And she is the executive producer at Ms. Studios. Michelle Goodwin, it is so good to have you back on the show. Thank you so much, Dahlia. It's great to be with you. Michelle, you've had your eye on Alabama <laughs> for decades. Um, there ought to be a song, Your Eyes on Alabama. Well, your eyes are on <laughs> Alabama because most of our eyes have not been on Alabama. Can you take us back to what it is that led to the moment we're in now where everybody's eyes are on Alabama? What was going on 20 years ago that you were worried about? This is material Again, incredibly prescient from policing the womb about the numbers of women who are being prosecuted for fetal crimes, um, subject to involuntary medical intervention. Uh, you really, really saw Alabama coming in the ways many of us did not. Can you talk us through why? Well, I spent time in Alabama. I interviewed prosecutors in Alabama. I did that long before Dobbs. I think that probably my first on-the-ground work in Alabama was maybe 16 years ago. And then going back to Alabama with substantive periods of time, relatively speaking, so not just in and out, but at least spending weeks at a time or something like that. And then following up with interviewing prosecutors about the potential of what could happen and what was already happening in Alabama, there was a child endangerment statute that had been enacted, not intended to be targeted at pregnant women or people with uteruses, but that's how the law was being implemented by prosecutors. It was a law that was attempting to discourage men from turning their homes into meth labs, uh, which then could blow up and then would harm 
everybody inside, including children. So it was a means to try to discourage that. And it was intended for children, meaning people who were four and five and six and 10 and 12 and whatnot. And in fact, the legislation's co-sponsors later said that, you know, this was not what we were intending, that it would be used against this law, used against pregnant women. And I think there's so many aspects for us to unpack in terms of how that came about, which is that women going in for prenatal care, meaning women who are not trying to have abortions or seek abortions, but were trying to be as responsible as possible to get the prenatal care that they needed, and then asked, as we all do, about our social histories. For example, do you exercise every week? Do you drink beer? Do you drink wine? How many glasses, et cetera? And these women were being honest about their experiences. And what they did not know is that prosecutors were basically using this as a trap, encouraging medical providers, doctors, nurses to contact them or to be responsive to their calls when they wanted to find out if a woman had used methamphetamine during pregnancy or a Valium or anything else, and to turn over what in medical information that these women viewed as being confidential, as being private between themselves and their doctors, not knowing that it would lead to these prosecutors basically making wins and and hits of wins. You're not going after the men, you're not, you know, getting the men who are part of this big drug trade, but you can go after these women seeking prenatal care. And that's exactly what happened. And coercively, these women were taking extraordinary plea deals, 10, 15, 20 years when confronted with these heavy-handed prosecutions. Well, I I, I saw what was happening. I, I met with prosecutors. I wrote about this. I you know, very recently on a news show, they pulled up an article that I published seven, eight years ago, quoting from it about if embryos are granted rights, because in fact, these were the kinds of moves taking shape as part of the anti-abortion movement, even beyond the question of um, fetal personhood, embryo personhood, and to just wrap a thread around Alabama is that prior to this most recent case and prior to Dobbs, the Alabama Supreme Court had ruled in a challenge to this child endangerment law that they saw no difference between a 12-year-old and a fetus. They saw no difference between a viable fetus and a non-viable fetus, basically making the link between non-viability and children for purposes of prosecuting pregnant women. And that was about seven years ago. But I'd also say that in other states, they were trying it in different ways. So in the state of Georgia, with an embryo adoption law, the sponsor of that legislation said privately that, well, I, I said, said the private part out loud, not as part as the legislation, but separately in press conferences, that with that legislation being enacted as legislation that people could wrap their minds around if they're cryopreserved embryos that haven't been utilized and couples are happy with the embryos that they've used, why not allow other couples to adopt them? And on its face, there are people who, you know, could embrace that. Say, well, this helps other couples avoid the high cost of assisted reproductive technologies. It allows them to build and grow their families. Why not? But in 
press conferences apart from the legislating, you have these lawmakers saying, now this will grant embryos constitutional rights and constitutional rights on par with these women and possibly even to be able to defeat the constitutional interest of these women. And again, embryos with rights, embryos with constitutional rights, bridges that most Americans (laughs) would say go all too far. Yeah, it's so interesting because I think when I think of you, I think of conversations I've had with you, with Dorothy Roberts, who I know hugely influences your work, with all the people who were saying for years, this isn't just about abortion. This isn't just about abortion. And also saying, this is not just about IVF. And now we are having this incredibly myopic IVF conversation. And let's be clear, it's not an IVF ban in Alabama. Alabama didn't ban IVF. The fact that clinics are not providing services is a different matter. But I think we just got dragged down this road of, well, you know, Mike Pence says that his family used IVF. You know, I mean, IVF is okay. And we're having a conversation that yet again, as it did with abortion, hives off this question of, oh, this is about, you know, assisted reproductive technologies. That's not actually the conversation we we should be having, right? This IVF conversation is not the problem. It's a manifestation of a problem that is sprawling that you and Professor Roberts have written about for years. And I just want to be very clear that one of the reasons we wanted you on the show is because the category error we made for years after Roe was talking about this as an abortion problem. We're falling into the adjacent category error of now having a conversation about IVF. And you were always critical of the laser focus of groups like Planned Parenthood, who were so focused on abortion that they missed the trees. We're about to do the same thing. We're certainly doing it in the press around Alabama and IVF. That's right. Well, you know, as I've said for many years, that rights is a plural. And yet the reproductive rights movement for decades basically had its eye on abortion and not on what would be all of the other spokes on the wheel that would convey rights. And just by comparison, if you think about the civil rights movement, what the people involved in it were so deeply concerned about was not just Brown v. Board of Education. They didn't just sort of wipe their hands and say, okay, now we've reached the motherland. We don't have to care about employment and housing and accommodations and whether you can actually walk through the park in your neighborhood or swim in the pool in your neighborhood, all the myriad satellites, we knew that civil rights contained all of that. That was, it was deeply understood. And so we're talking about from the start a flaw, a flaw in, in conveying and conflating rights with just about abortion. And your point is well taken in terms of the wake of Alabama, this sense that, okay, now this is all about IVF rather than the broader satellite of so many issues, the basic understanding, contraception, sex education, employment, economics. You know, it's interesting to think about the midterm elections and this sense that it was going to be this Republican tidal wave and that no one was thinking about abortion and it's about the economy. It's about gas prices, as if women don't buy gas, as if women don't have to pick up the kids, pick up their parents, be a caregivers to others, 
commute all around town, as if women aren't concerned about economics, whether they are in a marital relationship or they're single and having to think about how do you make ends meet? How do you put food on the table? How do you do all of these kinds of things? And then keep yourself from being policed by child welfare services if you somehow slip and don't do it well and are thought of being negligent towards your kids because they don't have the newest clothes or shoes, or because they don't have adequate funds for lunch money and all of these things. Of course, women are thinking about these matters. And what Black women understood and have intergenerationally for centuries, because let's be clear, what's been on the minds of people very recently (laughs) pales in comparison to how long, how long Black women and Indigenous women have had to be confronted with these questions about family and reproduction from the very start. And understanding that laws measuring, surveilling their reproduction were not matters that were new, but the very foundations of American law, which so many people don't really understand. And even in law schools, they don't grapple with, but the very first laws of the United States determining how parenting would come about, that there would be this thing called matrilineity, that children would inherit the status of their mothers. And from the very start, a campaign that would say you inherit the status of your mother, meaning that it doesn't matter who your father is, if your mom is an enslaved Black woman, that will be your future. It doesn't matter if your father is the owner of the plantation or owner of plantations. It doesn't matter if he's, you know, the owner of the big business of the railroad or any of those things. You will forever be fastened to her status. And then what that means in its real application, which was so denied, ridiculously denied in the way in which we've addressed reproduction. And that is to say, Thomas Jefferson famously wrote about on his plantation, he preferred for there to be women and girls rather than men because he said they were turning a profit every year or two. And Dahlia, as we know, Thomas Jefferson was not talking about, oh, Black girls just pick cotton at a more feverish rate than do Black boys and Black men. He wasn't talking about Black women are better with rice and sugarcane than it would be Black men. He wasn't talking about, oh, they're just so sturdy in how they handle tobacco. Thomas Jefferson was conveying to other politicians and other planters in writing, which you can find at the Monticello website, he was conveying this as a means to show that forced reproduction imposed on Black women and girls was something that was profitable and that would render profit to people who would follow this advice that he was giving. But he was not alone. We see these histories written out in the advertisements of the 1700s and the 1800s. And there they are. You know, when people are advertising unabashedly to sell their breeding winches who are 12 and 13 years old, well, what makes someone a breeding winch? How does she get to be a breeding winch at 12 and 13 years old? Or when they're advertising for the return of the breeding winch who was 14 that escaped with her two-year-old daughter, Maria, who's mulatto. What does that mean? Our failure to understand and piece together, here is this history that is telling us so much about the links to which people will go in order to exert power, 
in order to capitalize off of the reproduction or lack of power associated with reproduction of the most vulnerable in our society. And I just wanted to share that to give more context so that we're not just navel-gazing at the matters of the moment, but that rather to understand a legal history that dates back centuries and to understand then the social and cultural milieus and practices that allowed those legal histories to maintain and persist over time. I think what you're saying is so important because it takes this out of the current frenzy of, you know, wealthy heterosexual parents fretting about IVF, which, you know, is very easy to fall into, and that's the discourse. And what you're saying is we are sitting in the midst of a centuries-long regime in which power and capital and wealth are transferred from white men to white men patrilineally, and oppression, policing, and criminality are, in fact, transferred matrilineally. And that perpetuates itself and still does. And it's why I think what you say in your book and what Dorothy Roberts says in hers is that we are fetishizing unborn babies for all the reasons you say, Michelle, right? They are economic entities. And we are converting every single womb in the country into a crime scene under this kind of dizzying canopy that you describe in your book of homicide and child endangerment and drug laws and involuntary incarceration and treatment laws, and that particularly vulnerable communities are always going to be singled out for behavior under that regime. Your book, Policing the Womb, was published four years ago. You always saw this is the world we're living in. I'm just wondering how much more post-Alabama this week, post-Dobbs, how much more visible is all of this to you and how much more remains invisible in the discourse? Thank you for that question. And also referencing the brilliant work of Dorothy Roberts, which has been an inspiration. I mean, I, I remember the day in which I came across Killing the Black Body in a bookstore in Kentucky, in Lexington, Kentucky, and seeing it on the shelf because here was a work that chronicled what some of these histories were, gave legitimacy to those voices, acknowledged the voices that I've just talked about, those experiences, those histories. And so as we think about the surveillance and, and policing, here's something to think about in, in Alabama and, and beyond. So when you have then a backdrop of policing and surveillance, and I think that people understand now we cannot deny the policing, the surveillance that has now become a part of this modern post-Dobbs moment. It existed beforehand, but now people are coming to see it. And they're seeing it in Texas, 
where you have the state's attorney general making clear through writing letters to hospitals and doctors that he's going to strongly enforce the state's abortion bans. And that even after a decision that would have allowed Kate Cox, a woman in that state who risked health, life, future infertility, et cetera, if she were to continue being pregnant, and a district court saying, well, she meets the standards for the exception in that state, and yet having a state's attorney general warning doctors and medical providers, hospitals do not provide medical care to her. So, So in a space of policing and surveillance, what does it mean even in a state like Alabama when embryos can now be considered persons? Well, it means that with hyper-surveillance, menstruation becomes a political issue. It becomes a legal issue. Menstruation can be the crime scene itself. Well, what happened? Wasn't there sex that month, right? Wasn't there multiple times of sex that month? The boyfriend, the husband has come forward and said they had lots of sex and somehow she bled and there's not a pregnancy. What did she do? Now, we would know that that would be absurdist pre-Dobbs because, Girls and women menstruate for a millennia, a millennia. But in this kind of space of policing, it means that any time potentially where there could possibly have been sex, and we know that not all sex leads to there being a pregnancy. But that said, in a time in which science doesn't matter to people of law, when health doesn't matter then it means that the potential for criminalization and Alabama is particularly worrying now with this sort of embryonic personhood because that means the potential for hyper-policing of miscarriages in that state. And we've already seen in another state just the links to which in a backdrop of policing, a lack of care, a lack of showing dignity and integrity and empathy towards pregnant people, what that can look like. So Brittany Watts is a recent example, Black woman in Ohio who is told by her medical providers that she has a non-viable pregnancy. This is a non-viable pregnancy that could end up risking her life, but they refuse to intervene to help her at all. They refuse to help her manage this miscarriage. She is sent home multiple times, and she has a miscarriage in her toilet, and people miscarry in bathtubs, in toilets. It happens when it happens in the car, wherever it happens to be. But in her case, with police busting open her toilet, searching through fecal matter, looking for fetal remains. Just the backdrop of that is chilling and horrific. It's something out of some strange and grotesque sci-fi movie, but this is a reality in the United States. And, And this is that backdrop, and it's one about power and misogyny baked in over time in law. Let's pause now for a quick break. And we are back now with Dr. Michelle Goodwin, author of Policing the Womb. One of the things, Michelle, that you've documented, particularly in Policing the Womb, is the ways in which prosecuting and criminalizing and surveilling pregnant women involves, long before I clocked it, systematic 
collaboration between law enforcement and medical professionals. Um, you've got amazing work on the fiduciary relationship uh, between physicians and their patients and how to think about where the law intervenes with that. Uh, one of the you know, we've got hospitals turning over medical information to law enforcement that you talk about years before the some of the stuff that we're seeing now. And I was really struck by Linda Greenhouse's piece in the New York Times this week accusing doctors of cowardice is the word she used in the face of the Alabama IVF ruling. And I know people are really, really roiled up about the ways in which physicians have been co-opted into this scheme. And I wonder if you can walk us through, and I know this is just such an intractable set of questions, but how do physicians navigate this landscape of fertility and pregnancy and policing and criminalizing the womb? And you've got, you know, cops get legal training about how to get permission, how to search. Medical personnel have no idea (laughs) what they're doing. They're not constitutional lawyers. Nobody's briefing them. They don't know what a search looks like. And I wonder if you've thought about this harder than anyone. Is it fair to say that physicians around the country who are either fleeing the state or going to hospital boards or letting people go septic because they don't know what to do or shuttering IVF clinics because they don't know what to do? Like, are, are they making cowardly choices or are they just trapped in this absolutely unwinnable tension between two prerogatives. So this question could be the entirety of us spending an entire weekend together. There there are multiple legs to the question. The first is to understand most immediately what's taken uh, shape in this backdrop of securing the gates around the anti-abortion time that we're in, which is also a broader moment than just that, but just for purposes of translating it to the audience. So in order to secure this, to make sure that abortions would be deeply limited, was to then police doctors, right? So it's just one prong of that is that then you see in Texas, the potential of losing your medical license, 99 years incarceration, a $100,000 fine, South Carolina and Louisiana have had lawmakers proposing the death penalty, right? So sort of create this atmosphere of fear. And those are not the only states, but across the country and states that have engaged in abortion bans, there have also been the efforts to place a very heavy thumb on the scale involving doctors. This is part of why I've called this entire era the new Jane Crow. But then to the question with regard to doctors and nurses and others and their complicity. I use a term that's in the book, which I have to say is borrowed from a person who's now my colleague, Paul Butler. But years ago, I think it was 2007, and I was presenting a paper at a conference Paul and I were both at, and that paper was prosecuting the womb. And Paul said, yeah, Michelle, you're talking about snitches. He's like, yes, this is exactly the kind of atmosphere being created. Now, what would motivate doctors and nurses to be snitches? Well, to be clear at the time, it was really snitching against black and brown patients. It wasn't that doctors were turning over private medical information of the white women who came in that they had empathy towards, patients that they wanted to treat 
and want it to support. And it's interesting, this kind of dichotomy, because you had these doctors prescribing pretty heavy medications to pregnant white women, Oxycontin, Demerol, cocktails of these medications. There are studies that show the the dramatic increase in the use of prescription medications amongst wealthy, educated white women during pregnancy. Well, at the same time, doctors snitching on their black and brown patients who would come in and say, I feel stressed. My back hurts. My feet hurt. I'm working two jobs. I used a Valium from a friend during this pregnancy. Or yes, I did use crystallized cocaine, crack during this pregnancy. And these women being turned over to law enforcement, while at the same time, other women, white women are being prescribed medications to help them with their headaches and with their swollen feet and with their aching back and all of this, right? Really creating a kind of tale of two cities, two different people, people who on one hand, wealthy, white, educated women deserving comfort, deserving empathy and sympathy for the conditions of a pregnancy, deserving the support of their doctors, deserving the confidentiality of their doctors, and on the other hand, not so. And we can't divorce this from the other data that we know in terms of the disparities, the health disparities that bear out anyway. And around 2003, the then Institute of Medicine published a book, nearly five or 600 pages, called Unequal Treatment. And what Unequal Treatment documented was across hundreds of areas of medical care, hundreds of areas, Black patients received disparate treatment, did not get the treatment that they should have received or received poor care and quality of treatment. And the only area that they could identify where black patients got more care than white patients was in receiving amputations. They were two to six times more likely to have a limb amputated than their white counterparts. And so I one must understand this moment is, yes, this is a time in which we should be deeply concerned about the targeting of doctors and nurses and the kind of prurience that's behind that, the perversity of that. And at the same time, this kind of long enduring history as well of white medical providers not being the source of support that their black patients have deserved. And the last thing that I'll add to that is that one of the crowning achievements of Johnson that is not talked about, it's talked about the 64 Civil Rights Act, 65 Voting Rights Act, but in 1966, banning discrimination in healthcare, and that hospitals that receive federal funding that discriminate against Black people and other people of color could lose that federal funding. It was an achievement Johnson worked hard at that. He had to combat the American Medical Association, which was not down with that, which I think says a lot. And at the time, there was actually a civil rights movement amongst Black doctors to try to insist upon the quality of care for Black patients. And that is a backdrop to all of this, which really doesn't get discussed. I feel like there's such a straight line between what you just said and one of the things you say every single time we speak in public, which is you cannot have this conversation without seeing that the lawmakers who are fetishizing childbirth and babies are telling on themselves because the 
maternal death rates in those same states are so high. This has nothing to do with protecting life, with good outcomes, with good pregnancy and health outcomes, because particularly in the South, I I feel like this has been such a, a drumbeat for you. If you cared about life, the maternal death rates would not correlate to all of these restrictions. That's absolutely right. And and so what we see is that so much of this has been about power and control, which I know is hard for people to grapple with because they want something more, a sexier answer, something that makes sense of what it is that we've seen. Why is it that in 2016, when the Supreme Court in Whole Woman's Healthy Hellerstedt acknowledges that a woman is 14 times more likely to die carrying a pregnancy to term than by having an abortion, Why would it be then that there could be a Dobbs a few years after that, that it would make no sense when the World Health Organization has said that an abortion is as as safe as a penicillin shot? Why is it that we would see what has come to be now? But it really must be understood that this kind of inconsistency, this kind of confusion really relates to misogyny and it relates to power. This is how we could have a eugenics movement in the United States that would ban poor white people from being able to even become parents, right? 1927, the United States Supreme Court in Buck v. Bell determining that Carrie Buck, a poor 16-year-old white girl who has been raped and has a child out of wedlock, should not be able to have any children in the future. And in fact, no one else like Carrie should be able to have children either, such that in Virginia and other parts of the United States, more than 30 states enacting these eugenics laws where there are literally poor white people who are rounded up, poor white girls who are 12, 13, 14 years old and coercively sterilized, and that it becomes such a prominent campaign that the Nazis in Germany latch on to it and come to the United States and visit exactly and study how is the United States implementing this eugenics program. And then they take the law back and almost verbatim implement it in Germany. And there is a point in time in the 1930s where we have American lawmakers that are saying the Germans are beating us at our own game. We have to speed it up, that there are fitter family contests in the United States, that at state fairs there are buildings that are built for the fitter families so that people can come and show how blonde their hair is, how blue the eye is, who the babies are. And of course, you know, when one looks at that, that's a different kind of policing. And what stitches all of these things together is a sense of power and control. And to your earlier questions, we have to be mindful that in this period, there's so much that is at stake, right? So we have the Supreme Court and the Mifepristone ruling. We have the Supreme Court taking up whether federal law, the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, applies to people who are pregnant and need an abortion in order for their lives to be saved. We have lawmakers saying that this was never intended about pregnancy, although keep in mind the very law says Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act. It was intended to address matters of pregnancy. And we could go down a list. The revival of the Comstock Act, right, which would impact First Amendment rights, what can be put in the mail 
for purposes of reproductive health and medicine. So much of it looks like Jim Crow, where you can travel, and slavery, where you can travel. Can you leave your state? Can you leave your state without the attempt for lawmakers to try to block you from getting out, the threats of pulling you back? There are so many comparatives to times before that we've seen. And I think if we pay attention to that, that gives us some insight in terms of what is coming next. Remember after SBA, you said Fugitive Slave Act? Yes. And you said, and when Dobbs came down and Justice Kavanaugh wrote that concurrence, Michelle, saying, oh, this won't in any way burden interstate travel, you said, prove it. So yeah, I think I think both of those things, uh, the notion that this stays in Alabama is addled. It's absolutely out. And uh, and it's out elsewhere beyond Alabama, as there are lawmakers that are now proposing legislation uh, to extradite doctors from other states and get them back in their states for criminal punishment and also laws that now also seek to curb people taking teenagers for abortions to other states. There are myriad laws that are now being proposed and enacted, and it looks absolutely like a playbook coming out of Jim Crow, where the most absurdist laws somehow made their way into law. And people, though being invisible, felt the weight of that. I mean, it wasn't the kind of thing that made the nightly news. But these were certainly things that Black people carried with them day to day. I have on my script, Michelle, at least eight more questions, but we are going to wrap. I think I want to ask about this. I wrote earlier this week a piece making some version of the point you made up top, which is this is a conversation not just about IVF, not just about the police, it's also a conversation about families and who gets to decide what your family looks like and the ways in which we use not just the law of, as you say, you know, adoption and the law of removing children from the house. This is Dorothy Roberts' work. All of that law is used to reallocate <laughs> children from one set of families to another. And as you said, if you were black or brown, you knew that long before this IVF case came along and sort of surprised us about who is allowed to make decisions about your children. But the thing we haven't talked about and we have to end on, all that conversation about who gets to raise children and who is unfit to raise children is so deeply infected by religion. And it always has been. And the Alabama decision is so theological and so unabashedly religion-based, and I would say not Judeo-Christian grand themes, but (laughs) full-on, in some sense, uh, white Christian American ideas about religion. So I would love if you would kind of take us home to understand how this happened, why this happened, why it's a kind of a soundbite in the coverage, like, huh, he seems to be referencing the Bible a lot, the Chief Justice. Why this happened, and everybody seems surprised? Well, let me say that Justices Sotomayor and Kagan have been ringing an alarm bell about the weaponization of the First Amendment, saying so quite directly 
on cases that involved reproductive health care. I think about Nifla v. Becerra. What's interesting about this is that we're at a time in which the Supreme Court has said that originalism matters. We must look to the past in order to be guided in the present. And if one were to take that seriously, one should see that there is a very thick divide between religion and law, that church and state should not blend together. And so we see the illusoriness of that in these times, um, the kind of selectivity of determining uh, what are the kind of religious inferences uh, that should or could embed in law. And you're absolutely right. This lean into religion makes no room for anything outside of a kind of white Christian nationalism type of approach, which should have no bearing in American law and that from the very start. But now we see it as a point of being able to harm other people. And I'll close with this. In the Constitution, religious minorities are protected from the tyranny of the state. That really is the purpose behind the Bill of Rights, to protect individuals from the tyranny of the state. It's not intended to place a thumb on the scale such that people can be harmed in the name of religion. That is exactly what the people who colonized the United States were fleeing from. And here it is in 2024, one sees it far more visibly implanted in American law than I think perhaps ever before, at least in recent decades and centuries. And so it's alarming, but I would say that this won't be the end of it. Very likely we will see more of it. And that should cause even people who aren't concerned about reproductive health rights and justice to be concerned about our American democracy and our laws. Dr. Michelle Goodwin is Linda D. and Timothy J. O'Neill Professor of Constitutional Law and Global Health Policy at Georgetown University. She's author of six books and over 100 articles and commentaries on matters of law, medicine, reproductive health, and biotechnologies. She's also author of the indispensable book, Policing the Womb. And I think I'm just going to close here by saying that at least for me, one article of faith since I've met Michelle is just follow wherever she's going because she's 12 steps ahead of you and she knows what's coming. And you will just be much less surprised in life if you read and listen to Michelle. Michelle, thank you so very much, not just for this really valuable and illuminating time together, but also for all the work that you have done to surface things that are, to many of us, too many of us, invisible. Thank you, Dahlia. It's a pleasure to be with you. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in, and thank you so very much for your letters and your questions and your comments. You can always keep in touch at amicus at slate.com, or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicuspodcast. Sarah Burningham is Amicus's senior producer. Our producer is Patrick Fort. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio at Slate. Susan Matthews is Slate's executive editor. And Ben Richmond is our senior director of operations. We will be back with another episode of Amicus next week. Until then, hang on in there.